Webster defines it as a tendency to relapse into a previous condition or mode of behavior, especially one that is criminal or delinquent in nature. Recidivism is a major problem with our justice system today. Incarcerated criminals, when they are released from prison, tend to return to their old neighborhoods, their old sets of friends, their old emotional and spiritual pattern, way of thinking. And because of this, without a significant external change or input, they tend to fall back into the same destructive habits that got them in trouble in the first place. Changing habits, though, isn't just a problem for convicted criminals. People in general struggle to change our ways. So difficult is it to change some habits and of acting, ways of thinking and feeling that some professing Christians have been tempted to suggest that there are some sins that are impossible to change in this life. But in contrast to such worldly notions, Scripture speaks of something called the new birth, which is the title of my sermon this morning. Paul says we are made to be new creatures in Christ in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. And apparently, this is true even of the worst sorts of sins, as he explains it in 1 Corinthians 6. Listen to, it, to me as I read verses 10 and 11 of 1 Corinthians 6. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, Paul says. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That phrase that I emphasized in the reading is important. Such were some of you, past tense. In Corinth, sinners of all kinds were nothing but recidivists. They kept going back again and again to their old ways until some great change took place. Some outside influence came in and turned their lives around until they received the new spiritual birth. Peter Describes this, terms and change in ter- describes this change in terms of hope that's connected to the resurrection in 1 Peter 1.3. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This isn't just New Testament teaching either. In terms of the new covenant, the prophets and the Psalms speak again and again of the change that God will bring about and that only God can bring about in our lives. Speaking of this new covenant, Jeremiah says that God will write his law on our hearts in the new covenant. It isn't that the law wasn't in our hearts in the old covenant. It wasn't that we weren't to obey the scriptures from the heart in the old covenant. If that were the case, you'd have to delete the book of Deuteronomy from the Bible. No. Religion has always been a matter of the heart in the Bible. What the promise of the new covenant is, that it will be divinely inscribed upon the heart by a sovereign God, and that he will effect the change that we cannot do ourselves. Likewise, Ezekiel speaks of God giving us a new heart, taking out in a divine surgical procedure the heart of stone, 
and replacing it with a heart of flesh. He speaks of being receiving and being poured out with clean water from above. Apparently all the water that we use to cleanse ourselves with isn't sufficient for the cleansing that's needed. Ezekiel also speaks of, of a, a valley full of skeletons. If you like zombies, then read Ezekiel 37. But in this passage, the zombies become living beings again by the breath, the breath of God through Ezekiel. And those dry bones come together and the ligaments are attached and the sinews attach the bones together and they're clothed with flesh and where there was nothing but a graveyard before is, is a valley of, of new men and women in Christ. All the many commands of James are attached to this new birth. We're not surprised that if so many of the writers of the Old and New Testament touch on the new birth that James does as well, and he does so in this morning's text. This is the topic of how people change, and James's answer is the new birth. There is no instruction in James that doesn't derive from this morning's passage. In fact, I believe James 1, 16 to 18, which is our passage this morning, is the heart of James. It connects everything in James. And out of the, the, the teaching of this short passage, all the other teachings of James are to be read and make sense. So let's consider then this new birth and, the th and three important truths about the new birth. I'm going to read our passage and then we'll ask God to bless the preaching of his holy word. James chapter 1, beginning at verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. So far, the reading in God's word, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Thank you, God, for the new birth. Thank you for interrupting our lives with, with change that we cannot accomplish on our own. Thank you for taking recidivists, repeat criminals, and making us holy men and women of the Lord by your grace. I pray that the words of my mouth now will, will, will honor and glorify this remarkable truth of the new birth, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So three important truths about the new births. The new birth, first of all, the new birth takes place in a hostile environment. As I've been saying over the last six weeks, we live in a negative world, and the new birth happens within the context of this negative world. Something is, that's hostile is an opponent or an enemy. And look at the enemies in our passage. Verse 16 says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. The beloved brothers is a way of is shorthand for James to describe the assembly of the saints, the church. Men, women, boys, and girls who are part of God's community. And apparently within the community, there's the real possibility of lies and, and deceit taking hold of people's minds. So this first enemy, the enemy of lies, 
is important to understand that the new birth happens in the context of lying. I think it's relevant to recognize that lying is the first weapon of battle, and when it comes to the new birth, spiritual deception, not the truth, is the common currency. You're being told that you're fine the way you are, or that you can fix the way that you are. Those are two common lies. And sometimes Christians join in the deception, and we tell our friends and our family members that they're fine the way that they are, either by our words or by our actions. Your enemy, the devil, is the father of lies, and he certainly is one source of lies. Peter tells us that he prowls around looking for whom he may devour, and we get devoured by lies. They eat us alive like a lion might eat us. The devil's lies, James tells us in James chapter 4, are to be resisted. But while lies come from the enemy of your souls, James doesn't mention them here. The danger of deception here is you. You are deceived when you are lured and enticed, verse 14 and 15. That's last Sunday's passage. You're your greatest enemy here. You're, you're, the biggest liar in your life is you. The vast majority of lies that you hear and then come to believe come from within your own heart and mind. Each one is led astray when we're read, we read, lured and enticed. Your own desires are your real enemy, and of course, desire by themselves are not bad. But coupled with a sinful nature, desires only turn to our harm and not to our health. Inner lusts that are averse to God seize upon your life circumstances and tempt you to believe all kinds of things that aren't true, including that God is against you. I'll return to this idea in a minute. But the new birth takes place in a hostile environment in which lies are the common currency, and likewise trials are your regular experience. Trials are not easy. Trials are difficult by definition. They are hard. So a second enemy or a source of hostility is this environment of trials or temptations. Various trials, James says, characterize our lives. Various, all kinds, from small to big, from ones that come from within, we'll call those temptations, from ones that come from outside of you, we'll call those tests. Life is hard and then you die is the way that some cynical people put it. This fatalistic mindset has some elements of truth to it. James has stressed the difficult nature of our hostile environment from the beginning of this letter, and it's important to note that if it weren't for your inner disposition to believe lies, the trials wouldn't be nearly as hard. But trials become doubly difficult because of the nature that you have to think false things about your circumstances. Which brings us to a third aspect of the hostile environment. Lies, trials, and temptations are the first two. The third one is the double mind. We get this in verses 6 through 8 of chapter 1, and we've looked at the double mind, and I want to remind you that the double mind is not simply having questions about God or about God's world, but it's having divided loyalties. It's having part of your heart dedicated to God, believing God, but then the other part of your heart is serving yourself and your own desires. 
this double-minded mindset is a combination of the testing environment and your tendency to being deceived. In such an environment, how can anyone survive? How can anything be born in the midst of such hostility? To illustrate this, I heard this week about the case of Victoria, a Ukrainian woman whose son Fodor was born, according to a Guardian news report, in an old Soviet bomb shelter on the second day of the Ukrainian-Russia war. Here's how she describes it. We were hearing explosions. I was praying to meet my son. I started to clean everything in my house, preparing for the baby, and even when I started to feel pain, I couldn't believe I'd be giving birth during the war. Me and my husband were afraid to drive to the hospital because of the explosions. First, we had to spend about 30 minutes in a queue to get gas. That had to be incredibly stressful. Then we're riding through Kiev and it was empty. I'd never seen such an empty city. We heard the sound of sirens. It was scary like a movie, but I was trying to stay positive. When we arrived, all the lights were turned off because hospital staff were afraid of being bombed. My doctor met us and showed us to a very comfortable and colorful room, but two hours later we heard sirens. It was very loud. It was unreal to look through the window and see all the beautiful Gothic architecture and hear the sirens. While I was pregnant, I had taken yoga classes, prepared for gentle birth giving, took courses. Nothing prepared me for this. Well, Victoria gave birth to her son in an extremely hostile environment, and if I may say so, if she can do it, by God's help, we can do it. God can work miracles even in the most hostile environments you may find yourself. Given the hostile environment that you're in, how is it that this new birth can come about? The answer is, what is impossible with men, as Victoria discovered, is possible with God. So my second point then is that your new birth has supernatural qualities because it comes from God. If you think of it this way, the hostile environment is a little bit like darkness. And God's supernatural qualities are a little bit like light penetrating and dispelling the darkness. So the environment you're in, you're shrouded and surrounded by clouds and gloom and fog. You can't see anything. And then by God's grace, he supernaturally parts the mist and you can see the path in which you are to walk. The negative world we made is a little bit like the bad news. And then by God's supernatural grace, the new birth represents the good news. Look at verse 18 for three supernatural qualities. First of all, the power of God is, is demonstrated. James highlights the power of God. It says in verse 18, of his own will. That's his power. That's his strength. You can paraphrase this. By God's sovereign will, he caused us to be born again. As you know, this is a hostile world, and our hearts are naturally deceived. We're bent not towards God, but we're bent away from God. You were called to endure the troubles of this life with the joy of heaven, but everything in you wants to reject heaven's joys and enjoy this world for all of its problems. The 
This shows that what's necessary then is God's sovereign power is to work. I mentioned Jeremiah 31 in the New Covenant. I will write my law on your heart, he says. If you were to look up Jeremiah 31 in your Bible, it's not that the law is written on your heart. It's not that the law is written on your heart. It's that I, God, writes his law on your heart by a demonstration of the power of God. Jesus tells Nicodemus, you must be born again. Nicodemus can't understand how a man is to re-enter his mother's womb when he is fully grown. And Jesus says, it's by the power of God. And it's not a natural birth anyway. It's a birth from above. Again and again, you and I undertake self-improvement projects, but the Bible's way is different. Jesus said, you did not choose me, but I chose you. John 15, verse 16. Jesus said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. John 6, 44. Not that you have nothing to do with it. Your choice plays a crucial role. God will have no robots in his army. But the choice that you make, if you choose life, is based upon the life that he has given you by his sovereign power. Of his own will, he brings us forth. Back and behind our human choices is God's empowering choice, the supernatural, heavenly power of God. And how does he do it? Well, the text tells us of his own will, verse 18, he brought us forth or gave us birth by the word of truth. The word of truth. In other words, while the power of God is the foundation or driving force behind your new birth, it's the word of truth that is the agent or the instrument that brings it about. James doesn't explain what he means, but Peter does in 1 Peter 1, 23 and 25. You've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. And this is the good news that was preached to you. The word of truth is the gospel, which is why a sermon can't be complete without the preaching of the gospel, the good news of who God is and what he has done in our lives, that he sent his only begotten son to die on the cross for poor, helpless sinners. If another solution could have been found, do you think he would have sent his son to die? Do you think if Jesus could have done anything else, besides die that death that he died, that he would have? In fact, he said, Father, if it be possible, take this cup from me. But not my will be done, but thy will. You see, once the Father determined to save sinners, the only way, the only way possible was for Jesus, the Son of God, to die on the cross. And this is the good news, the gospel. Jesus spoke the gospel to Lazarus himself when he says, Lazarus, come out. And by the word of truth, the voice of Jesus, that dead man came to life and he came out with the grave clothes hanging from his body. That's how powerful the word of truth is. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 4 talks about 2 Corinthians 4. He says, just as, light set, just as God said, let light come out of darkness, the power of his word in creation. That same power is present in a different way in redemption. 
So God has said, let the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ shine in each one of your hearts. The same word that spoke from nothing into all this beautiful world that we have. That powerful word speaks into our dark and deceived hearts. The word of truth that you might be born again, born anew. I need to speak here for a moment some technical concepts that are important to distinguish. The first word that gets spoken into your heart is not one that you hear. This is called regeneration. And it happens by the sovereign and mysterious power of God. And most, most of the time, you don't realize it. The second word that God speaks into your heart is from a sermon or a friend or in your own reading of Scripture. And that's when it flashes into your mind with conscious awareness. I am a sinner in need of a Savior. We call this justification. And the only way that you can be saved and justified and, and freed from your sin if God has worked in advance his, his, his team of rangers who move in and clear the ground and, and give you that new heart that Ezekiel speaks about. So regeneration always precedes faith because the new heart has to have a capacity to believe and your old heart doesn't have that. It's a heart of stone and not a heart of flesh. I also want to speak a word here before I continue about the supernatural um, power of God in, in changing us. The importance of the preached word. I, I shared a little bit of this in my, uh, in my post this week on our church's uh, network called Realm, if you were able to read that. The importance of the preached word of God. The, the confession teaches us that, that the word of God, especially the preached word of God, has the power to convince and convert sinners. There's something about being spoken to. I'm not downplaying the, the importance of personal Bible reading, but there's no substitute for the preached Word of God, the proclaimed Word of God. And the difficulty is, is that I'm telling you this, and I'm a sinner like you. But the mystery of the gospel is that God has chosen sinful men to proclaim his truth. Inasmuch as I preach what is faithful to the scriptures, it is as if Christ himself is speaking to his church. And so we dare not neglect the assembly of the believers, not just because it's commanded in the fourth commandment, but we need to hear Christ. We need to hear Christ speak to us. And I'll add, he doesn't just speak to us from the pulpit. He speaks to us in the sacrament as well. So we are a church that emphasizes word and sacrament when we gather together. And this is the revival. This is the renewal that you need. You need to hear Jesus loves you. You need to hear that every week. Every week. You need to hear it every day, but at least once a week you need to hear a pastor tell you Jesus loves you. Your sins are forgiven. The gospel of truth has come into your life, the word of truth, sovereign power of God, his sovereign will, has done a remarkable work in your life. And then you need to taste and see that the Lord is good. So we celebrate the sacraments almost as frequently as we preach the word of God. We see them as uh, neither one is to be taken advantage of or to be treated lightly or to be taken in vain, certainly. We don't want you to listen 
with, with lazy ears any more than we want you to take the sacrament with, with a lazy heart. We see this as a refreshment for our souls, the word of truth. So the supernatural qualities of the new birth is the sovereign will of God, the word of truth, and thirdly, the goodness of God. Look at verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift, ESV is a little vague on this point. It's one is the act of giving and the other is the gift itself. So everything that's given, you could say, for the first phrase, and all that's received in the second phrase, that's from God. Every good thing is from God. A common definition of the good is that for which all things long or strive the standard for advancement in the individual and in society, the good. But used in this way, good has no meaning in and of itself, but entirely is dependent upon the context, varying from person to person or society to society. But according to Scripture, God is the sum total of all that's good in every person and in any society. He is the essence and definition of the good, the true, and the beautiful. He is, if we might put it this way, absolutely good. Absolute goodness. And it is goodness, I believe, that each one of us longs. You long for the good. You long to receive good things. You long to see good things and to be the giver of good things. But God has never longed for it. God is already there. He's never not been good. Goodness is, is as essential to his nature as his very being. That if God were cease for a moment to be good, he would cease to be God. And he's always been good, and he always will be good. The unchangeably good and glorious God receives goodness from no one and gives it to all. He is the giver of every good and perfect gift. And this is the, th the third supernatural quality of the new birth. In fact, the new birth is the pre preeminently good thing. Of all the good things that you have, the new birth is the best thing. And Paul grabs a hold of this idea, I think, along with James in Romans 8.32. It says, if God has given you the best thing, won't he give you the other lesser things too? Like what kind of father would give you the best gift, but then withhold all the secondary gifts? No, once you've received the best gift, you know that you've got it made. All the other gifts are coming your way as well. God has compared his goodness is contrasted in verse 17 to the stars. Do you see this? He's they're saying it's from above. By the way, that, that phrase from above will be important later on in James. It speaks, contrasting our hostile world that we've already mentioned to the world in which God lives, which is the good world that we're all longing for. We'll come to that again in a moment. But notice the goodness of God is compared to the lights. He is the father of lights with whom there is no variation 
or shadowed due to change. What's James doing here? I think he's saying that God is the creator. And you remember what phrase was repeated in creation? God created the the moon and the stars, and God said, it's good. He created the sky and the seas, and he said, that's good. He created the plants and the animals, the birds and the fish. That's good. Then he created man and woman. That's good. And then he looked at everything that he had made. Do you know what he said then? It's very good. This is the goodness of God. And I think we're being drawn to creation in Genesis 1 here when he points out that God is the father of lights. But there's more. It's not just God the creator, but you notice if, if, you, if you studied the stars, and I used to teach uh, ast- astronomy, not astrology. Um, I, also, I always have to remember and not mistake those two words. I used to teach astronomy to middle schoolers, and as part of our lesson, we would always take a trip to the local observatory, and it's late at night, you know, 10, 11 o'clock, and it, was, it had to be a clear, clear night, and we'd look into the skies, and we'd actually, you can watch them move. If you, if you sit there long enough, you can actually see the stars move, or the earth move. And of course, the stars are the background. And they move in regular patterns. That's why we can use them to predict seasons. That's why sailors could use the stars to navigate their ships by in the olden days. And so just as the stars move in a regular, predictable pattern, so God's goodness is regular and predictable. I think that's what he's saying here too. But it isn't just the regularity and the predictability because the text tells us the Father of lights, what does it say then? with whom there is no change or variation. So, it isn't just that God's predictable, it's that God doesn't change. He's so predictable that he never changes even a little bit. You think the stars are predictable. Oh no, it's nothing like God. Your good God is the one that is greater than the stars and unlike the stars is unchanging. And this is your Father. This is your Heavenly Father. Truly, truly a good God. And His goodness encompasses everything you need. Every circumstance you come to, every trial you face, and bringing you through them, and promising you provisions in the midst of them. I love David's song. He says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, and my cup runs over. That's your good God. The contemporary worship song, How Good Is He, I think puts it well, ministered to my heart this week in preparing this message. How good is He? Forgiveness isn't bound by circumstance because He's the God of second chances. How good is He? When the sinner's heart is all that I can bring, still He welcomes me. Our Father in heaven, the light of salvation, Oh, how good is he, the breath of Almighty before and behind me. Oh, how good is he, and this is the part I love. Thank you, Jesus, everything, with everything, for everything. God is good. This is your 
good God. So we're looking at lessons about the new birth. And the third lesson about the new birth that James teaches is not only does it take place in a hostile environment and it has supernatural qualities, but it points beyond itself to an ultimate goal. The new birth is not the goal. Getting saved is not the point. Becoming a Christian isn't about getting a ticket to heaven and then we're done. Look at what the text says in verse 18. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. And circle this, that, so that, purpose statement. The purpose of the new birth points beyond itself. It points to something else. What does he say? That we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. You're saved, you receive the new birth to make a difference in the world, in other words. You're actually made to partake of the new world that God is making, a new world that is no longer hostile to God, that, that from above world that I mentioned just a moment ago. You're actually seated with Christ. You're a citizen of that world. Your identity is found in that place. Your priorities come from there, and you're to model and witness and demonstrate as the new community of the Messiah, the true Israel, the 12 tribes scattered abroad as the first fruits of a great harvest that's coming. You know, you're headed to another country like Abraham was. And in this, you need to walk by faith because God hasn't told you where it is and he hasn't told you how long you'll be journeying. And so it's a counterintuitive, confident witness. Follow me. Where are you going? I'm not quite sure. When are you going to get there? I don't know, but it's the best place of all. And so you're more like a pilgrim, an ambassador of another land, witnessing to that land, but you're not yet home. It is, this, it is the new world, and because of this, your new birth will make it seem like you're going against the grain in this world. So the whole crowd is traveling this way, and you're walking this way all by yourself. Hundreds, thousands of people are headed towards this way, and you and a few others are headed against the grain. I'm not a great carpenter, but I do know cutting against the grain is difficult. When we go against the grain, when you're sanding a board, it's hard. Thinking in terms of an agricultural image, the world is a field, and God is gathering in fruit from the field, And not all of it is fruit that will endure. You are the first fruits of the new world. This fruit is just the beginning of a global ingathering of produce, all for the glory of God. The fact that it's only first suggests that what we see right now is actually quite small in comparison to all that will be. The fact that it's fruit suggests that the growth that you currently experience now may not be much compared to the growth that's coming very soon. First fruits were the Old Testament special portion, the part that was dedicated to God as holy, set apart, the part that was um, symbolizing that which was to come. And he says, you, Christian, are the first fruit. You are set apart by God as an emblem or a symbol of the greatness that is to come. So our lives, you see, are a witness. Jesus says, you are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. He's saying the same thing. 
Before I conclude this point on the supernatural quality of the new birth, or before I conclude this morning, I should say, I want to return to the idea of recidivism, which I mentioned in my opening comments. This is a tendency for prisoners to relapse to their old lives. This is a tendency you and I all have to go back to our old ways. I read a story this week from Voice of the Martyrs, and if you were here several years ago, one of my first assistant pastors in the church, Mario Freitas, now works for Voice of the Martyrs, and he has moved from Brazil, and he lives in Oklahoma, and he's the Middle East director for Voice of the Martyrs. And so I'm sharing this story in part in, in honor of Mario's continued important calling to help Christians around the world. This is a miraculous instance of a prisoner who was radically changed in prison. From the African country of Niger, his name is Brahim. Brahim was in a sweltering prison cell in the Sahara Desert, conditions that would have killed other inmates. But Brahim witnessed a group of men visiting the prison in 2017 to, quote, make some improvements for the prisoners. They put in windows and walls, they installed ceiling fans, they cleaned the bathrooms and other areas, and even brought a TV for the prisoners. These men were not affiliated with the prison. They chose to serve the prisoners out of their love for Jesus Christ. Brahim explains this. Before they opened their mouths to preach, their actions of taking care of people who were desperate and in terrible conditions started turning my heart towards Jesus. Through their behavior, Brahim could see that these men feared God and were, quote-unquote, on the right path. And as a result, he dedicated himself to following Jesus in prison. <coughs> Excuse me. When he returned to his home city, he felt God calling him to take the gospel to his own people, known as the Tuareg people. Here is a man whose life was forever changed by the power of the new birth. A man who, in prison, did not go back to his old ways, but received the new birth by the word of truth, which is the gospel that was preached and demonstrated to him by these faithful Christians who came to him in prison. It had transcended anything he had ever seen or experienced before in this life. As I, as I conclude this morning, how can you apply this morning's message? First of all, your new way of life. If you have received this generous gift of God, the new birth, then you are to value this precious gift of God which has been bestowed upon you. You have a responsibility to be true to the person that God has made you to be. You are a special portion to God. You are to be holy unto the Lord. You are first fruits. You are to follow a way of life that shows that you are relying upon and content with all of God's good gifts, whatever form they may come. Your witness to those around you who haven't tasted and seen that the Lord is good is that he is good. So my first challenge is to renew your commitment to living this kind of life. But secondly, if you have not yet received the new birth, you need to realize that it is no more possible for you to be the agent of your own birth in Christ than it was for you to be the agent of your own natural birth all the work from the initial choice to the completed deed is his, and so is all the glory. But, and this is a paradox, you must ask. 
You must ask for that wisdom which is from above. You must ask for the Holy Spirit to enter your heart. You must ask for Jesus' blood to cleanse you from your sins. You must ask, God, take me, receive me. You must ask to be his child. Jesus said, seek and you shall find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Ask him today. And finally, be patient. If you're part of a harvest, then we're talking farming. And farmers can't be impatient. Things take time to grow. A watch pot never boils. By staring at the little plant, you're not going to make it grow any faster. This harvest takes time. All the growing, all the planting, the fertilizing, the watering, the sun shining, the sun setting, and repeating. It can be frustrating when you're in the midst of a trial or a hardship, I know. But turn to God, who is the giver of every good and perfect gift. You can trust him for all your lesser cares, as we've seen, because the best gift, the new birth, is yours. If he will give you this, be patient. He'll take care of everything else. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, the giver of every good and perfect gift, what a beautiful passage you've given us this morning to think about. And despite our hostile environment, we find ourselves supernaturally provided with the new birth. And our lives have been given a profound purpose, which is to witness in our various callings and our spheres of influence to the new world that's coming. I pray that you would renew your church in these things. And for the one that has gone astray or who does not yet believe, I pray that he or she will make that choice this morning to put his faith in this good and gift-giving God who gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. We pray this in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at www.mercyhillnj.org. We meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the church house located at 300 University Boulevard in Glassboro, off of Harvard Avenue, adjacent to the J. Harvey Rogers School and near Rowan University. We'd love for you to join us. Please see our website for directions. Thank you again for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast.